Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network, each week we take a closer look at the business issues making the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. The nation's public universities are in a dire state. This week, two different reports outlined the situation. The first stated that one in five academics have been made redundant over the past year, and the second uncovered that the government's changes to funding student places, last year's Job Ready Graduates program, doesn't cover the cost of cuts made in years prior. Universities have become heavily reliant on international students to cover teaching and research costs. But with borders closed and no additional government support forthcoming, can these institutions continue to meet demand as the support diminishes? Let's meet our panel. Hi, I'm Mark Warburton. I'm an honorary senior fellow at the Centre for the Study of Higher Education at Melbourne University. My name's Roy Green. I'm Emeritus Professor now at UTS, uh, formerly Dean of the UTS Business School. Hi, my name is Alison Barnes. I'm National President of the National Tertiary Education Union. Until about two years ago, I was an academic at Macquarie University. I guess I really wanted to start today's conversation by putting the current situation with universities into context. What was the sector looking like prior to the outbreak of the pandemic? Uh, Australia, I think, has had the benefit of a very high quality university system for many years. Prior to the pandemic, there was considerable anxiety about the shift in that funding mix. Universities were increasingly dependent on international student revenues uh, for their operations. And, And we don't just mean here domestic and international teaching, we also mean the cross-subsidy that was required to support university research performance. And that research performance fed into rising international rankings for most of our universities. There was, uh, if not complacency, there was considerable satisfaction with the progress of Australian universities. But nevertheless, that degree of anxiety about the precarious nature of the funding model when the Gillard-Rudd government came came to power, there was quite a large review of the role that higher education institutions should um, play in in educating our workforce. There were separate reports on on research. And the Gillard-Rudd government were really quite generous to higher education. They set targets. Um, They wanted 40% of 25% to 34-year-olds um, to have a bachelor degree or higher. Um, they put money into, uh, more money into research, but I suppose, as we all know, they ran into trouble at the end of the mining boom and had already started to cut back on the resourcing of the higher education sector. The coalition government very much wanted to um, stop the grade of growth 
in expenditure in higher education, they generally started to put downward pressure on financing of higher education. Though international student education continued to grow and the education of domestic students continued to expand. From staff's perspectives over the, I suppose, period in the lead up to COVID-19 hitting, I think uh, universities were increasingly places of stress, you know, more pressure in terms of class sizes getting bigger, that their teaching was blowing out, workloads were blowing out, and uh, employment arrangements were increasingly casual and precarious. So universities were certainly from staff's perspective, providing, you know, world gold standard education, but they're increasingly hot houses of pressure where people feel under more and more pressure to do more and more with less, publish or perish, teach more, bigger class sizes. Yes, I think Alison's quite right about that. The evolution of our, our education system has brought about these increased pressures, largely because governments have generally tried to reduce the impact of university funding on the taxpayer, quite contrary to many other countries which fund their universities 80 to 100% from a position in the 1980s, 90s, where perhaps 80% of university funding was taxpayer sourced. It's now around 30%, which is really the source of that precarious funding mix that we now find having been subsidised so heavily from international student fees. It's that creeping corporatisation of our universities. You know, universities are institutions that operate for the public good. They play such an important role in our society, educating future generations of students, you know, research developments, all sorts of amazing things. And it's that increasing corporatisation, which I think has led to many staff feeling like their capacity to contribute to the public good is eroded by the conditions in which they work. Going back to that point about international students, so basically you're saying that international students were used as a way to make up the shortfall in the public funding allotted by the government. What have we seen now that we can't have international students studying in Australia? In the decade in the lead up to COVID-19, you see about $10 billion pulled out of our public universities. And Roy has pointed out this kind of increasing reliance on international student fee income. So the minute, I suppose, the borders close to international students, this really throws our universities into this unprecedented crisis. There's no magic answer to what should the total level of resourcing of our university sector be. I think going forward, there's a very large question about how much research are we going to support? Nobody attempts to say how big should our research sector be, but it is absolutely clear that it has run off cross-subsidies from both international students and also some of the funding for domestic students. Um, And now there is, you know, an ongoing decline in international students, and that is going to take out quite a lot more money and has the potential to have a massive impact on research in the sector. And I really think we need to start having a debate about how we're going to handle that going forward. And there are many important things that we should be doing research into. Yeah, I think uh, Mark's drawn attention to the big picture there. Just at the time when other advanced economies are investing more in research and innovation as part of their post-COVID recovery strategies, 
we're spending less. In the latest data released by the ABS, the proportion of our GDP spent on research and development has declined from 2.2% a few years ago to around 1.79% now. Uh, the OECD average is 2.4%. And at this point, we've lost a large proportion of that research funding that was provided as that cross-subsidy from international students without any compensating provision made by the Commonwealth government. And if we don't invest in this, we will be a, a commodity economy and will, re, will remain vulnerable to external shocks in a way that other advanced economies are not. And it will also impact on our productivity and our living standards over the long term. Uh, we have governments that are thinking in three-year time frames, the pandemic, climate change, environmental degradation, all of these things are intergenerational issues and they will only be solved by the input of knowledge and ingenuity. And we know we have a lot of that in Australia, but uh, we're not capitalising on it. The fact that we're not as good as some countries at commercialising our research is not a case for cutting back research funding. It's a case for ensuring that the structures are in place to ensure translation of that high-quality research into commercial and social outcomes. You know, I'd agree with all of those points, but you also need to keep in mind that international student fee income also subsidised domestic teaching. And it sort of mm. beggars everyone, how are our universities supposed to play the role they need to play to deal with all the challenges that COVID has created? But also, as, as Mark and Roy pointed out, those future challenges, climate change, you know, the range of issues that we society society will face. And it just beggars belief that at this point in time, you really undermine universities' capacities to perform their core function of teaching and research. I guess, Roy, I'll come to you. You were the dean here at uh, UTS. Over your time in, in universities, how have you seen the, I guess, the approach to funding and the approach to uh, how we think about universities shift into potentially more of what Alison says, which is a more corporate culture. Well, I think that's true. We certainly have a more managerialist system within universities. Degrees of accountability are not something to be frightened of, of course, but if it means that we narrow the education that is provided to the next generation of students, well, I think that's that's necessarily harmful. And that's really the philosophy that lies behind the Jobs Ready graduate package, whereby not only was there a shift in the funding mix, a way further shift uh, away from public funding to place the burden on students, but there was also a deliberate narrowing of student opportunities, as though to say the humanities and social sciences were not of a sufficient status to merit significant funding and support in the way that um, science and technology might be. The emphasis, I have to say, that we put at the business school at UTS was on creating as much interdisciplinary possibilities as we could for our students to enable them to cope with the rapid changes that are taking place. The point being that many of the jobs that exist today won't exist by the time our students graduate. And those skills that Roy is talking about are not unique to one discipline. You get that across universities. So people are doing an arts mm. degree that might pick up a subject in a business faculty. There's that breadth of skills that is developed through studying across universities. What were the disciplines that 
I don't want to say got the cold shoulder, but yet yeah, that's the only phrase that's coming to mind. Uh, look, the government was clearly trying to discourage people from undertaking certain sorts of subjects, law, accounting, economics, personal services, history, archaeology, Indigenous studies, philosophy, behavioural sciences, social studies, well, human welfare studies and services, librarians. I could never understand why that was imposed on the sector at that point in time. It put an, it put an enormous administrative burden on them to try and manage the change and to try and work out what was going on. They were already in the process of trying to adjust their domestic student loads down after the government had imposed a freeze effectively on them for three years prior to that. They, re they really were a quite silly set of changes to the student contribution and subsidy levels uh, across disciplines, I thought. You know, when they say we've made it cheaper to become a teacher, you know, they haven't really necessarily made it cheaper to become a teacher. They've just made it cheaper for you to do an education unit. But what are you going to teach in? If you're going to teach history, if you're going to teach social science, then you were going to do those expensive units. What went on last year with the Job Ready Graduates package, I think, was really a lot of distraction for the government to achieve its objective, which was to lower the subsidy going to domestic student places and increase the student contribution. It created so much noise around it that it helped it get the changes through. It played into people's, we like these disciplines, we don't like these disciplines. It played into a narrative about we need to do this to help with the post-pandemic recovery. You know, we're going to make sure that there are more student places because this will be important for the post-pandemic recovery. That has not happened. The government's promised to grow funding over the years, but it's purely discretionary. Um, at any stage, if they decide that they need to get the budget, budget into balance, they can just make a decision to stop growing funding and they don't need to go back to the parliament whatsoever. It's a constant sort of cavalcade of demands placed on universities, which if you stand back and look at, you go, is this really how we want universities to spend their time, you know, and we then complain that they have too many administrative staff, but uh, those burdens placed on them, you know, are real and they have to deal with them. That's not the only thing that's really happened in the sector since COVID has struck. I feel as though every month there is a new university in Australia who's announcing changes to how faculty are organised or who's announcing that there are going to be X amount of job reductions or X amount of voluntary redundancies. It really does feel widespread. Now, Alison, the NETU did commission a report from the Centre for Future Work that was released yesterday that revealed one in five academics uh, have lost employment from May 2020 to May 2021. Of these, 90% were full-time employees. Alison, who are these employees who are losing work? The report found from the Australia Institute found that there are 40,000 job losses across tertiary education and 35,000 of those were from our public 
universities. So you're looking at a situation during COVID, which it's like a jobs apocalypse. There's large scale job losses across our public universities. They're uneven. First wave of job losses, which essentially hit casual employees, but also people in our private providers and the like. So casual staff, casual academic staff, but also, you know, people who work in the professional and administrative services or casually employed are the first to lose work. But we've seen as COVID has progressed, those job losses moving into people who have greater employment security. So we see those losses around permanently employed professional and general staff and permanently employed academic staff. We've seen women bear a disproportionate cost of the pandemic. The extent of the job losses, as I've said, is quite extraordinary. And so you see that affecting, I suppose, universities in a number of ways. You know, that pastoral care that's provided to students is presumably affected. Our research capacity is affected. Our teaching capacity is affected. And, you know, this is at a time when university staff are under a lot of pressure to move courses online. This is at a time when students arguably need more care, more care because students are also stressed because of what's happening to them during the COVID crisis. So it's been a pretty extraordinary period for our universities. And unfortunately, it's not something that is getting any easier. So we're left with a situation not only where 40,000 academics have lost their job, both casual and permanent, but where still the same number of subjects need to be taught with a lot less academics. And that means teaching loads go up, class sizes get bigger. Young and emerging academics who want to make a research career will be going to their supervisors and they'll be saying, I'm so flat out teaching, I've got to do any of that research that I was supposed to do. The system is now designed so that you can't do research. Other countries are investing hugely uh, in their research and innovation effort at the moment as they emerge from COVID. Germany's just announced a couple of months ago an $80 billion program in addition to what they already do. Every country in the world, even Singapore, just put $20 billion into research and innovation. And our research funding has been scaled back and um, with more scaled back as a result of the loss of the international student fees. So Australia is in a very vulnerable position. 40% of our exports are iron ore. What happens when that disappears? Where is the value add going to come from in our export mix if it isn't based on knowledge and ingenuity applied into products that we can sell. I think it's worth noting that it was only our public universities that were excluded from JobKeeper. This pandemic has arguably created a circumstance where we need more resources rather than less. We're in a situation where we are losing a generation of young researchers, a generation of expert teachers. How are we going to respond to the challenge that face us if we lose these generations of early career researchers? The situation that the pandemic has essentially also created for our universities is that it's producing more casualisation. Already over 50% of people who teach at undergraduate levels now universities do not have job security, they're insecurely employed. This pandemic is increasing that hyper-casualisation and that is to the detrimental of the individual staff member. It's to the detriment of students and it's to the detriment of the fabric of our 
uh, institutions and Australian society more broadly. Despite everything, universities posted a surplus for 2020, albeit down from the pre-pandemic heights. Do you think that we've seen the worst of things to come in terms of the COVID impact on universities or is Can this I make a comment on the surplus? Yeah, please. <laughs> I'd love that. I mean, governments have been very clear with universities and university managements that they expect them to manage and they expect them to manage within their resource levels, right? Now, last year, that is exactly what they were doing. They literally were laying off very many staff. So that's what the Australia Institute report was about. They did that. And th there are so many disingenuous things the government has done. For the government then to go, oh, look, you've got plenty of surpluses, what's your problem? <laughs> Uh, and deny that universities proceeded to adjust to their changed circumstances. That is also really very silly. Hard to make uh, surpluses if you're losing 40,000 jobs. Are we at the bottom or where does the fourth job? <laughs> like that feels like a very depressing question to ask, but yeah. I don't think we're at the bottom. I think all the projections that I've read suggest that the next couple of years are going to be very bleak for our universities. Indeed, and I think, you know, it's incumbent on our Vice-Chancellors to kind of step up and defend our sector, ensure that the COVID crisis does not lead to more casualisation because casualisation, as I just said, you know, points to all of those problems. But it's incumbent on our government to step up and provide, you know, funding that meets the needs of the sector. We need a rescue package and we need long-term funding, which ensures universities can meet the needs of students and the Australian economy and society. Uh, universities will adjust, uh, they can adjust, but they will adjust at a much lower level of performance and a much higher level of stress on both staff and student. And is that the sort of society we want? Uh, we're a, a rich country, we can afford a high quality higher education system. Other countries invest in higher education and research. Uh, we're disinvesting and that's not going to be good for us in the long term. People won't see it immediately, it's not part of the election cycle. No party is going to win the election because it says they're going to give more money to universities. But it is an obligation on the part of all governments to consider the future beyond the next election and to ask the question, what do they want our society to look like? Do we want a society where we fall into some sense of disrepair because we can't adapt to the industries of the future. We take advantage of new technologies and skills. Uh, we're dependent on global supply chains, which are increasingly vulnerable. And we do so only because we're able to dig stuff out of the ground and sell it, and maybe not even that on a continuous and guaranteed basis. So we need to think through whether we want to be a knowledge-based economy and society in the future. And if we are, uh, then we have to invest in order to do so. And it isn't a huge amount of investment required when you look at what else governments do spend money on. But what we have is a very fragmented system of funding. In the report that uh, I conducted a few years ago, we found that uh, research and innovation spending is spread across 13 portfolios of government, 150 different budget line items. No one really has a grasp of the entire system and the funding for all of this gets smaller and smaller. You need to consolidate a lot of that funding, spend it more effectively. And as we do so, and as we increase it, 
uh, we will see strong social and economic impacts in the future, especially on the big challenges of our time. The next three to four years, this year out to 24. So on the current policy settings, it looks like a very difficult time for universities. They don't really have any choice but to try and work out how they can adjust. Universities will do that differently. Some of them will make sensible decisions and I'm afraid some of them will make not very sensible decisions. Beyond that, perhaps there is some prospect of hope because I think things will have to change. There are economic, environmental developments that are going to force us to change. You, you can argue this is the, you know, the neoliberal economic paradigm. If you don't get your tax base sorted out, then you are effectively forced to get students to pay for their education and you are constrained in the resources that you can put into research. While you pretend that forever you can, can continue to cut people's tax rates, you're, you're going to have that problem. It's obviously become political, but it shouldn't be because universities and higher education generally contributes to the health and wealth of our society. All we do know is that in the longer term, we need to put much more emphasis on the education and skills that are going to be required for the next generation and the research that will underpin the industries of the future, as well as the values of the Enlightenment that have become part of the fabric of our society over several centuries and which we do not want to see eroded, let alone removed from the way in which we run our economies and societies. The reality is we are in a national education crisis and it is incumbent on our government to step away from the short term and step up and provide some real and genuine relief for our sector, for the good of our nation and the good of future generations. And they need to be asked why. You know, they need to be held accountable for their decisions to walk away from public education in this country. But it's also incumbent on university management and vice chancellors to step up and not use the pandemic as an excuse to drive further casualisation um, and wage theft. So we really need to see our vice chancellors and our university executives step up and start defending our sector. If any other sector was subject to 40,000 job losses, the vice chancellor should be standing on the steps of their chancelleries every day, holding press conferences and putting pressure on our government. They should be advocating for their students and for their staff and for the good of the nation. That's all for today's panel. Thank you to my guests, Alison Barnes, Mark Warburton, and Roy Green. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Stay safe, and I'll catch you back here next week.